Nuclear films. So much of what we learn and retain as a culture comes from the media we consume, and few forms of media are as potent and memorable as whatever comes to us on film. It's rare that a mainstream movie like Dr. Strangelove or On the Beach, one that raises serious nuclear concerns, gets made, especially these days, and pro-nuclear or nuclear-ignorant material abounds. But there is an international community of filmmakers who are dedicated to nuclear issues and take them on, usually on a shoestring budget, to put together documentaries and dramatic films, long and short, dozens of new ones every year. These films might languish unseen were it not for the annual International Uranium Film Festival. And why is it so important that these films be shown? Listen when the head of that festival tells you the new generation that is now in television, in the journals, in the newspapers, into power, teach them, you know, it's not so easy to send weapons and to risk nuclear war. Nuclear war affects us all. And it seems that the new generation today have forgotten this. They haven't never knew it. Well, when Norbert Suchenek, founder and general director of the International Uranium Film Festival, talks about the collective blind spot that makes nuclear war and all nuclear, atomic, uranium issues incomprehensible to so much of the world's population, and how important it is that we not only preserve these films, but share them as part of our collective history, that you begin to realize that you are not alone in your concerns, and that others understand that there is a giant, uncomfortable, radioactive seat that unfortunately we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Norbert Suchenek who, along with his partner Marcia Gomez de Oliveira, is founder and director of the International Uranium Film Festival, which is coming up in May. We talk not only about a few of this year's films and the reasons for their importance, but also an exciting online discussion which will take place and have representatives of indigenous people from both the northern and southern hemispheres discussing their shared dangers from uranium mining and what can be done to stop its spread. We'll also have a brief check-in with Arnie Gunderson, chief engineer of Fairwinds Energy Education, on the lie that nuclear provides 20% of the world's electricity and why its actual percentage keeps going down. 
And of course, there will be nuclear news from around the world, and more honest nuclear information than anyone's family wanted to hear about at Easter or Passover or Ramadan celebrations, but maybe we can slip it in for Earth Day? All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 19, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting in Ukraine, where the Russian ship Moskva, flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, has been confirmed to have sunk near the port of Sevastopol. Experts and analysts are now warning that the warship may have been carrying two nuclear warheads. They are calling for an urgent probe into a broken arrow incident, military slang for an accident with nukes. At the Zaporizhia 6 nuclear power plant complex at adjacent Enohardar City, they continue to be under control of the Russian army. There are several different enemy groups on the territory of the nuclear plant, Russian soldiers, riot police, and members of Russia's FSB, the Federal Security Service. Staff of the station is forced to coordinate all actions with the so-called military commanders of the occupiers. While they have not been trained in nuclear matters, they have been joined by a Rosatom brigade, Rosatom being the state energy corporation of Russia. Russia's actions at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is classified as a crime against humanity and a war crime, as defined in Article 7 and 8 of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and it's also an act of nuclear terrorism. As of April 16, the area was again being shelled. In the U.S., at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant near Carlsbad, New Mexico, the nation's only underground nuclear waste repository, an underground area was evacuated after workers handling a shipping container discovered a small amount of radioactive liquid inside it. Officials confirmed that the shipment was packed and sent from the Idaho National Laboratory, but still have to determine the source of the liquid found inside. The nuclear industry is fond of citing a rather old statistic, claiming that it provides 20% of the world's electricity. Now, a new report has come out from the U.S. Energy Information Agency that gives lie to that statistic. To learn a bit more, while I interviewed Arnie Gunderson, chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, for last week's featured interview, I asked his response to this report and what it shows. Well, it shows that nuclear power is in a continual decline, not just in, in America, but worldwide. The total amount of energy produced worldwide from nuclear was at a high of 17% a decade ago, and is now less than 10 now, some of that is retirements, and some of that is the fact that all new generation is coming on as, as renewable. So there's more power being generated by other alternatives. But here in the States, there were 120 nuclear reactors finally licensed, or 250 that applied for licenses. And then they realized, hey, this is too expensive. But 120 were, were finally licensed. And now we're down to 94 it seems like every month or two, we lose another one, not to meltdowns, but to uh, economic meltdowns. They're just not cost competitive. All of these plants that are closing have been approved by the NRC to run for 60 years. So it's not a question of the NRC saying, hey, don't run this plant. The, the owners are determining that compared to renewables, they're just not cost effective. And when they have to compete against a windmill or a 
solar farm, they're dying. You know, they, a great example is Dwayne Arnold out in uh, Iowa. And Dwayne Arnold was, was scheduled to shut down. And then a um, Derencho wind, Derico wind, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, a line wind came and it caused the containment to fail. And the NRC has determined that it increased the likelihood of a meltdown. They'd like to see it at one in a million. It increased it to one in a thousand which is a thousand-fold increase in the likelihood of a meltdown, that one climate-induced weather storm. So what they did was they shut it down early. And the next thing is interesting, though. They used the transmission line for new solar. So they're actually now producing more solar power from the farmers' fields around that power plant than they were nuclear power when the plant was running. And I think that's a great example. There's real value in these transmission lines from these power plants. And as long as the owners can keep them running, they're crowding out a cheaper source. And I, I think that's part of what's going on in the Midwest now is that if a nuclear plant closes, uh, there's a lot of people competing to get that transmission line because they can provide power cheaper. So what happened in that latest report is another one bit the dust and uh, there's only two more in the hopper to be built, and that's way overpriced plants in, in Georgia. And so the, um, the net effect is that they're dying an economic death. Then I, you know, I hope and pray that, uh, that they don't have a meltdown in the process. But as they get old, that likelihood increases every day. Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education. And in a related story, for one day in March, Wind-generated electricity surpassed coal and nuclear and became second only to natural gas. This happened on March 29 and was the first time that wind surpassed both these other energy generation systems on the same day. In Massachusetts, lawmakers, environmentalists, and Cape Cod officials are rallying behind legislation that would permanently put the plug into a plan to dump one million gallons of treated radioactive wastewater from the now-closed Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station into Cape Cod Bay. This is in response to a 2021 proposal by decommissioning company Holtec International to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. We'll be posting a link to the source article from Cape Cod Times on our website. We'll be posting a link to that story, as well as the following stories. How a recent report from the Grand Canyon Trust alleges that the White Mesa Uranium Mill, adjacent to Bears Ears National Monument, has exploited a regulatory loophole to transform itself into an under-regulated toxic waste dump. In New Mexico, announced plans to produce the radioactive cores for nuclear weapons at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, up to 50 per year, is meeting with intense official pushback. The idea of implementing an immense nuclear program at Los Alamos has sparked outrage among citizens, nuclear watchdogs, scientists, and arms control experts who say the pit production mission is neither safe nor necessary. Producing them at Los Alamos would force the lab into a role it isn't equipped for. Its plutonium facilities are too small, too old, and lack important safety features, according to the critics. The lab has a long history of nuclear accidents that have killed, injured, and endangered dozens, if not scores, of people. As recently as January of 2022, the National Nuclear Safety Administration, 
the federal agency in charge of the U.S. nuclear weapons stockpile, launched an investigation into a January 7th leak at the lab that released radioactive material and contaminated six workers. We'll have a link to an article on how the cleanup of abandoned uranium mines on Navajo Nation land encompasses, according to third-generation worker Daryl Yazzie, environmental justice, social injustice, and flat-out racism. There's a story on how more than 100 former students of the Colonia High School in Woodbridge, New Jersey, have been diagnosed with rare brain tumors. A 30-minute drive away was the Middlesex Sampling Plant, an entry point for African uranium ores known as pitchblend that were imported for use in the nation's early atomic energy program. And there's a Washington Post story about a rancher in Montana whose ranch holds a nuclear-armed Minuteman III intercontinental ballistic missile, which is stronger than 20 Hiroshima bombs. It sounds like a setup for the plot of the famous ABC television movie of the week, The Day After, which will be discussed during today's featured interview. All of these stories will be linked on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, episode 565. In Japan... Tons of that country's nuclear waste may be destined for overseas disposal. More than 57,000 tons of large equipment that have or will in time become radioactive industrial waste. Among the countries and companies most likely to be taking this waste, here in the U.S., Energy Solutions, which is based in Utah. Japan is also continuing to push forward with plans to dump more than 1 million tons of radioactive wastewater from the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. And South Koreans are not pleased. At a forum to find ways in cooperation with neighboring countries to tackle Japan's plan to dump this nuclear wastewater next spring, Representative Seo Sam-suk of the Liberal Democratic Party said, the contaminated water released into the ocean will spread across the entire Pacific Ocean in 10 years and affect almost all of our sea. Marine pollution will be inevitable, so the government and the political circle should proactively act for the safety of the people. In Poland, Christopher Miller, the former U.S. Defense Secretary, said that the country has taken measures to ensure continuity of government should the Russians launch a nuclear strike on Polish territory. The main Polish sentiment expressed was, if Ukraine falls, Poland is next. In Denmark, the health agency, concerned by the war in Ukraine, will buy 2 million iodine tablets to protect people in the event of a nuclear accident close to that country. Plans are to cover risk groups including children, young people up to 18 years of age, pregnant and breastfeeding women, and emergency personnel up to the age of 80, stating incorrectly, that for people over the age of 40, no protective effect is seen from taking iodine tablets. And stock shares in Rolls-Royce tumbled 5.5% based on its new markets division, which is focused on building small, modular nuclear reactors. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat's new website keeps growing. We're in the middle of uploading more than 200 of the earlier episodes, and we'll be adding the transcripts to them next month. If you scroll down on the landing page, you'll see a section where you can click on some of the top experts we've interviewed on the show. And all of the episodes where they've participated will pop up automatically. Yes, still to come is the proofreading, we know, and working out the bugs as we discover them. 
But looking at the numbers, the show is already getting more hits internationally, more countries, and ultimately, the past 11 years of the history of opposition to nuclear in all its forms will be available in audio form for free. The weekly archives of the world's longest-running program exclusively on nuclear. The goal is to provide you, anyone around the world who has the Internet, with access not only to today's breaking story, but how we got there, provided on a week-by-week basis for almost 11 full years. There is truly nothing like Nuclear Hot Seat. As you might imagine, this website upgrade has not been inexpensive. Costs have far outstripped original projections, and from this point on, monthly running costs are double what they used to be. So the time to help us out with a donation to Nuclear Hot Seat would be right now. Here's a thought. Why don't you sign up to donate just $5 a month? It's the same as what someone would spend here in the U.S. on a nice cup of coffee and a good tip. And to be honest, it's those monthly $5 donations that we can count on that actually keep this show up and running. Of course, if you'd like to make either a one-time or continuing donation of any larger amount, that would be terrific too. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com Click on the red Donate button and know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. It takes passion, perseverance, time, energy, dedication, and dogged determination to create anything in the media. But to do it for 11 years, that's almost incomprehensible. Believe me, with Nuclear Hot Seat coming up on its 11th anniversary, I know. Someone else who knows is today's guest, Norbert Suchenek. He is founder and general director of the International Uranium Film Festival. Started in 2010 and first appearing only two months after the Fukushima nuclear disaster in 2011, the IUFF has been an annual highlight in multiple venues in multiple countries every year. From Rio, where it is based, to Berlin, to Hollywood, Quebec, and more, This annual in-gathering of filmmakers and films is a highlight of the nuclear calendar and the place where we truly see how we are all sharing and fighting against that nuclear hot seat. Now, full disclosure, this year I was honored to be chosen as a judge for the competition. So I know things that I wasn't allowed to talk about, like the winners. But here we discuss with Norbert the history of the festival, some of the films in this year's competition, and a unique highlight of this year's proceedings, a live Zoom meeting that is going to bring together indigenous people from two hemispheres, Navajo Nation in the United States and from Brazil, to share with each other the truth of uranium mining on native lands and how film can influence understanding enough to stop it. I spoke with Norbert Suchinek on Monday, April 18, 2022. Norbert Suchinek. Thank you so much for making time in your extremely busy schedule to be my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. You're welcome, Libby. First of all, let's give people some background. What is the International Uranium Film Festival? Well, it's the most important film festival about everything that is nuclear, uh, similar to Nuclear Hot Seat. But with pictures. (laughs) And now because of COVID online too, we are just an international uranium film festival, a festival that screens all films 
about nuclear power from uranium mining to nuclear war from Hiroshima to Fukushima. What is your background and your co-producer on this, Marcia Gomez de Alaviera's background? And what made the two of you decide to take this on? I studied chemistry and became a journalist later because I always wanted to write about environmental problems. I moved to Brazil in 2006. At that time, I already knew that there are nuclear power plants in the south of Brazil. And I already knew that there are indigenous peoples living close to the power plants. In fact, the nuclear power plants were built in the past by the military government on the territory of the indigenous peoples without asking them. At that time, 2006, I knew because of Klaus Bigert, he is the founder of the Nuclear Free Future Award, that there will be a big event at uh, Window Rock, an event about indigenous people suffering because of uranium and nuclear power. This is Window Rock in New Mexico. Exactly. I talked to, to Klaus Bigert. Well, you know, all the people around the world are invited, but you didn't invite the indigenous people of Brazil. And he said, well, we didn't know that they suffer because of nuclear industry. Yes, they do suffer. So I arranged that, that the event in Winter Rock invited two chiefs of the indigenous people of Brazil to Winter Rock. But unfortunately, <laughs> when they wanted to really to, to fly to United States, they discovered, well, we do not have passports not even a visa. The only guy with passport and visa to the United States was me, a German guy, a German journalist living in Brazil. And I had to represent the indigenous Guarani people of Brazil at Windsor Rock at the huge indigenous world uranium summit. And there I met so many good people. It was so amazing the event over there. And especially, I met Jeff Spitz, as a filmmaker from Chicago, who made the film The Return of Navajo Boy. And I was crying when I watched the film in Winter Rock. I'm, I'm crying now. I saw the film also, and it is deeply moving. And I thought in Winter Rock at that time, why I didn't see that movie on television? on any cinema in Germany or in Brazil. And that gave me the kick to create the Uranium Film Festival. How did it come together and what was that first year like? I mean, how did you get word out to filmmakers and what kind of a response did you receive? Well, it was easy. I just made a handmade website without knowing how to do any website at all. Uranium Film Festival website, and we are looking to films. And it was uh, August 2010. And already in November 2010, we had 60 films arrived. We have a festival going on. <laughs> At that time, we had a festival. We had just the festival page. We had 60 films. Of course, we have to select the best ones. But we had no location, no money. <laughs> We just had everything, uh, well, 
the dream of a festival. But finally, suddenly in February 2011, after really asking thousands of people around the world uh, help and what uh, to, to support our festival, suddenly in February 2010, we received a good response from the Heinrich Böll Stiftung Rio de Janeiro. The chief of the Heinrich Böll Stiftung invited us to an event, and then he said, well, we give you $10,000 to make a festival. $10,000, it seems a lot, but if you know, a good film festival costs about $10 million. With $10,000, we can do it. <laughs> and so we, we arranged everything, and we got two great theaters in Rio de Janeiro to make the festival running. And we organized that the pupils of Marcia, Marcia, she's working for a school for film and filmmaking and television. And so the students of her school became our volunteers. So with $10,000, with the volunteers of the school and with free screening places in Santa Teresa, Rio de Janeiro, we could make the first International Radio Film Festival in 2011. We started the call for the films in 2010, before the Fukushima accident. That but was the, the festival happened after the Fukushima accident. That was one of the most remarkable things. It was that Fukushima happened, and while everybody was still reeling for it, somehow, here's this film festival. And... From what you're saying, it was one of these coincidences of timing or guided from the other side or whatever your belief system happens to be, that at the very moment we needed to have something to hold on to, the festival was there. Yes, it, it's amazing. In February, we received the first financial support for the festival. And in March, happened Fukushima. And in May, we made the festival. The International Uranium Film Festival is now in its 11th year. What kind of topics have you seen covered by both the short films and the long films, the documentaries and the dramatic films that have crossed your desk? The topics are widespread, but uh, we have, of course, nuclear war. We select this year because of Putin's and the real possibility of nuclear war, we select nuclear war as one of our topics. And so we have one great film from South Korea, The Basement, about nuclear war. And of course, nuclear war, if everybody in the United States think about nuclear war, they will think about the day after. That was the ABC film that took up an entire evening. This is going back to, I think it was the 1980s was when it appeared, the 80s, maybe the 70s. But 83. it was 83. For people who aren't familiar with it, it was an entire evening's made for TV movie event about a group of people in Lawrence, Kansas. And then suddenly the bomb got dropped and there were no commercials for the second half of the movie it just played and it made just a huge impact i think this film the day after it stimulated that at the end russia and the united states started to reduce their nuclear weapons program 
that started really to make a world peace without nuclear power. Today, we say the different story. Today, we see we are, everybody's looking for more nuclear warheads. One of the films we, we select for this year is television event. And that film tells the story about the day after. And in, in a way, now it, it's amazing. You have to watch it. Full disclosure here, I was honored to be chosen as one of the judges for this year's program. And so I have seen television event and without giving any of it away, it is on one hand, a making of documentary of a film. And on the other, it is an astonishing documentary and document to introduce an entire new generation or several generations to what the film the day after was, why it was important and what it actually took to get something like that made and aired on national television. And it's so important. As I watch every day, you know, we have to watch television every day. All the news, nuclear war, Putin says that, says that, and we have to send more weapons to Ukraine. And I see all the people talking so easily about nuclear war. They are youngsters, young presenters, less than 30 years old. They have no problem to talk easily about nuclear war. They didn't see the day after. They don't know what it is. Our generation, you and me, we have seen it. We know what it is. And for that, it's so important to show television events. Really, we have to get the new generation that is now in television, in the journals, in the newspapers, into power, to teach them, you know, it's not so easy to send weapons and to risk nuclear war. Nuclear war affects us all. And it seems that a new generation today have forgotten this. I don't think they ever knew it. Yes, of course, they haven't, never knew it. Whereas I grew up during the 50s and I remember the fear of nuclear war being a daily existential crisis for me because I was afraid that at any moment it could happen. I'm a child of the Cold War. I had to serve as a soldier in the German army. And I was a soldier and we called ABC soldier. A soldier prepared for atomic, biological, chemical warfare. I know what it was during the Cold War. The work that you've been doing to not only bring this festival forward, but to produce it, this is now the, what, 11th year that it's going to be appearing, is quite a feat. And I can understand some of the emotional motivation behind it, because I have comparable motivations myself. What are a few of the films from the past that have stood out for you as particularly meaningful from the festival? Oh, God. Of course, the first is The Return of Navajo Boy. I saw it in Window Rock, and then we translated it into Portuguese and screened it again in Rio de Janeiro in 2011. There are so many. We screened during the last 11 years in Rio de Janeiro and around the world because we hold the Reino Film Festival, not only in Rio. 
we travel with most of the films every year to any other place. I think altogether we made about 70 film festivals from Rio to Winter Rock, New Delhi, Berlin, New York City. We have been in Washington. So we screened about 200 films and all the films were important. At the moment, because I had to watch all those new films, they're very interesting. I would say, for example, Broken Error, the nuclear accident that happened in Spain, 1966. It's a film about the Cold War and about the madness. You must imagine, at that time, 1966, the United States flew bombers around the globe 24 hours with every bombers, B-52s, with four bombs on board, 24 hours a day around the globe and around the borders of, of Russia. And to do this, these planes have to uh, get gasoline on air every day. Every day there was a B-52 plane and another plane coming, a tanker with gasoline to fuel the bomber, the B-52. Because every second we have to drop bombs on Russia and with four nuclear bombs on board. And in January 1966, the accident that should not happen, happened. One bomber B-52 crashed with a tanker full of fuel over the southern part of Spain, a place where Spain was at that time trying to create a tourism resort, Almeria. And the planes exploded and the nuclear bombs, all the four bombs, thanks God, didn't explode. They just fell down, but just fell down. <laughs> Three bombs fell down on the village uh, Palomares, a village of, of fishermen. And if they broke down, they can pollute the air and the region with, with the plutonium. And so the three bombs fell down and broke. They didn't explode, but they polluted the region with plutonium, especially tomato plantations, the air and the ground. And the fourth nuclear bomb fell into the sea and was lost. The United States Army, of course, sent urgently a team to clean up everything. Thousands of soldiers, especially colored soldiers, to clean up the mess on the earth. And U-boats and big vessels to search for the Ford nuclear bomb lost. They recovered it one month later just before uh, submarine from Russia. Well, that would be a film in and of itself. Something no. with Tom Cruise starring in it. That's another thing, because we have the documentary about that event. It's really a must-see documentary. And we will show you a comedy fiction about that event that happened in 1966. You know, a comedy fiction. You see tourists on the beach watching how the... Four bombs fell down from Earth. So let's move this along. 
How has being in the festival, especially being named one of the winners, helped films with their visibility or distribution? Is there an afterlife for them? There, there is always an afterlife. There's always an afterlife. One special afterlife was for a film from India, High Power. It was a film made about the first nuclear power plant of India, a very amazing film that showed that a nuclear power plant is not only a danger because of an accident. The film shows the nuclear power plant is already a danger during the construction and during its lifetime because nuclear power is producing nuclear waste every day. And this film shows a village in India suffering from this first nuclear power plant of India. And this film was forbidden to be screened in India. We showed it in Rio. We gave the film our best short documentary award. And surprisingly, after the award, after it was announced in Indian newspapers in India, the government lifted the ban and the film could be shown all over India. And beside of that, the director of the film uh, received invitations to screen the film on about 100 locations around the world. That's amazing impact for the festival to have had. So through the years, there's been an increase in digital production ability, meaning people can take small affordable cameras or even their cell phones out and do editing on their computers. So it can be much more self-contained at a much lower price point. Do you find that that has in any way impacted the number or the quality or the diversity of the films that you have been receiving? In our experience, we receive every year about 70 films. It seems to be stable since the first year. So we have, no we have no increase in new films. It's always around 70 films. What is increasing is the picture quality of films. During the first year, because we, in, during the first year we received DVDs with maximum of three gigabyte. Today we receive films with 200 gigabyte that we cannot handle. <laughs> So what we feel because of the, I would say, the revolution of digital bits is it's going to be more difficult for us because it's easy to handle films with three, four gigabytes. But now we have to handle 100 gigabytes. I do not see that the story quality improves. What changed was the gigabytes. It's more easy to make more gigabytes. People think that that is somehow better as opposed to understanding that this provides a challenge for the festival. But, but of course, the pictures are much better. Now, the quality is much better, but not the quality of the stories. We are now into the third year of the COVID pandemic, and you have had the International Uranium Film Festival truly be international with the number of cities and countries and here in the United States, the states where it has been. We even had it at one point here in Hollywood. How has COVID impacted your ability to 
travel with the films and to get it out in front of audiences? Because of COVID, we really had to suffer quite a lot. For example, when COVID broke out, we have been already in the aeroplane from Brazil to Portugal to make our film festival at the place, a very special place in Portugal, where the people decided not to have a nuclear power plant, 1976. And we wanted to make the film festival there to commemorate this date. But when we, we arrived at that village, there was COVID overall, we were isolated. We could not do our festival. And it was also planned at that time, at the first weeks of COVID, to make the to, to travel from Portugal to Spain to make our first Reino Film Festival in Spain. But Portugal closed the borders because of COVID. So we couldn't even flew to fly to, to Spain to make the festival in Spain. So we were at the end, we were isolated at the house of a friend of us in Portugal, together with about 20 chickens to have everyday fresh eggs for about two weeks until we, we organized a fly back to Brazil. Did you have any chance at all to show the film? If not in person, then in some digital format online? Well, during the COVID then, we had a festival in Berlin and with every restrictions. You were physically in Berlin. No, we not. When we came back to Brazil, we, we had to be isolated in Brazil. So we could not leave Brazil until today. We could not leave. But now, of course, hopefully we, we can continue to travel and to make new festivals around the world. But during the hard time of COVID, 2020, 2021, we had to stay in Brazil. But our friends and co-producer in Berlin, they could make a festival in Berlin, 2021. And we could make an online festival 2021 in Rio de Janeiro, just showing online, just to say we're still alive and we are still going on with our festival. And that was amazing because I guess we had about 7,000 people watching the festival online. That's far more than you could have gotten in person. Yes, far more. Well, the Rolling Stones can get during their events in person, about 1 million people in the Maracana Stadium, if they want, so. That's okay, 7,000 people for an anti-nuclear anything is an amazing <laughs> number. So what form is the 2022 International Uranium Film Festival going to take? And when will the films be available? This year, we will have the festival from May 19 to 29, live, at the Museum of Modern Art Cinema, which is our partner since 2012. And all those films will be shown original with Portuguese subtitles. And you can watch all the films also online during the 10 days film festival for free. What is your vision for where this film festival can go? How would you like to see it grow? And what would you like to see it grow into? Well, it's growing 
especially because of the event, the invasion of Russia and Ukraine, and especially because what we see, what is going on in Europe, everybody now is saying, well, we must have nuclear power because we don't want to have gas from Russia. Everybody's saying we must have nuclear power because it's the only way to save the climate. Because of that, I think our festival must go on and on and on. Because you don't know, the people forget what are the risks of nuclear power. It's easy to forget because a new generation, it's every 15 years. And you can fool them easily if they are not informed every day. So I, I don't see that there's an end of the festival in, in a few years. In fact, the festival was created to continue because the radiation continues. The nuclear waste that we already have to store about 200,000 tons around the globe will be dangerous for about 1 million years. And we have to make sure that the people know that it is dangerous for the next 1 million years, at least, if we stop today the production of nuclear power. So when shall the festival end? In 1 million years? Well, maybe not with me. Somehow I doubt in a million years you'll still be running this, Norbert. And if you are, I don't know what that says about reincarnation. We'll see nuclear hot seat in one million years. Oh, well, definitely. Of course, I'm still going to be around. Does the festival have any conjunction with a distribution network such as Netflix? We would like to have it. But it's so difficult even to contact Netflix. In fact, we have a problem with Netflix because there are several very good films about nuclear and radioactive risks that are screened by Netflix, but they do not allow us to show it at our festival. In other words, once Netflix shows something, for example, the film, I know Radium Girls, where I've interviewed the filmmakers and I've seen the film and it's quite excellent. That's on Netflix, I think, even now. Yeah. You're saying that that's an instance where you're not allowed to screen it for the festival. Exactly. The rights of the Radium Girls are sold to Netflix. And Netflix does not allow us to show the film. It does not allow us even to give the film an award. Because if you cannot show them, the film cannot get our award. Well, it's difficult with those big companies like Netflix, and you don't know who is really the owner. And there is no address. We really tried hard to get to the big people of Netflix, and it was not possible. Then looking at this from the opposite direction, is there or would there be any interest by you to have a partnership with Netflix so that the top films that come out of each year's festival can then be presented to them for their consideration on the network. Of course. Of course, we are open for that. And, and our filmmakers too. Every filmmaker wanted to have his film shown as wide as possible. And beside of that, Netflix, they have a good team. They could make a report of our film festival and show it on Netflix. 
Again, people will be able to view these films between May 19 and May 29. This will be online. Where do they need to go in order to access the films? They just have to go to on our website and there you will find the link a few days before. And your website is? Uraniumfilmfestival.org. And I have forgotten. We will have a very special event and you should not miss it. We will have a special person that will receive our Lifetime Achievement Award this year. And it's Elsie from the Navajo Boy. For that, we are going to have a special online event on May 23, online and global for everybody. It's an international Zoom experience, and you can meet the Navajo grandmother, Elsie Begay, and John Wayne, not the Hollywood icon. But he was named after John Wayne, and I believe that the John Wayne of cowboy film fame was the one who gave him that name. Exactly. It's a Navajo boy named after John Wayne, and from the family of Elsie Begay. Will Navajo Boy also be screened again this year as part of the festival? We will show it again as part of the festival, yes, we. And it's history of our festival. It is also deeply moving, the original film, and then there's an addition at the end. And I was in tears at this as well, because it was so powerful and it so spoke to the devastation that comes at every point along the nuclear fuel path, including uranium mining, which this shows what has happened as a result of the uranium mining on Navajo Nation land. We are going to have this meeting online with Elsie and other representatives of the Navajo Nation and together with indigenous people of Brazil. And it will be a special historical online event because it will be the first time that the Navajo nation will explain to native people in Brazil the risk about having uranium mines on their land. And why are we going to do this event? Because at the moment, there are several indigenous peoples in Brazil, in the northern, northeast of Brazil, in risk of a new uranium mine. And they have to know what is going on or what are the consequences of uranium mine. So we are organizing this event with Elsie and others to join indigenous peoples from Brazil and the United States to exchange their experiences and to learn from each other. That's extraordinary. And of course, we will have links up and information up as we get much closer to the event, including, as we have discussed, additional interviews with some of the filmmakers from this year's films. Great. Is there anything you can think of that you would like to add that we haven't covered yet? Well, I love my wife. Who happens to be your partner in the film festival. Exactly. Without her, the Raynor Film Festival wouldn't be the Rainbow Film Festival. Well, the two of you make a dynamic pair and you're certainly doing a tremendous amount to continue 
the impact of the voices of people who are saying, no, don't do this. It's a bad idea. Yes. For now, Norbert Suchenek and Marcia Gomez de Oliveira, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. That was Norbert Suchenek, founder and general director of the International Uranium Film Festival, which will take place online May 19 to 29. We will have links up to the IUFF on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 565. And in the coming weeks, we hope to have interviews with some of the filmmakers, along with links that will give you free access to the films. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. The Nuclear Age Peace Foundation is putting together the second in their series of Zoom talks, Nuclear Dangers in Ukraine. This one will be with Noam Chomsky and Daniel Ellsberg. That's quite the lineup, with co-hosts Cynthia Lazaroff and Richard Falk. It's going to take place on Friday, April 29, that's a week from this Friday, at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 8 p.m. Central European Time. We will have a write-up and a link to it up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 565. Award-winning environmental investigative journalist Carl Grossman, a regular guest on Nuclear Hot Seat, has a monthly cable TV show called Enviro Close-Up. His show this month is the first of a two-parter on the movie Don't Look Up, Adam McKay's superb film about a comet heading to Earth and people in government and media not taking the deadly threat seriously. Sound like a climate crisis or nuclear power danger that we know of? Discussing the movie, which Carl calls the Dr. Strangelove film of our time, is Harvey Wasserman, an author and veteran opponent of nuclear power who coined the term no nukes, Peter Hart, who is National Communications Manager of Food and Water Watch and previously was Activist Director of the Media Watch Group Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and me, both for my work on Nuclear Hot Seat and my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. We had such a spirited discussion that our scheduled half hour turned into a second half hour program, which will be continued next month. But this first one is already posted to YouTube, Carl Grossman's Enviro Close-Up, and we will have a link to it up on this week's episode. I think you will enjoy it. As for the Tweet of the Week... This is a new feature to help us all up our social media game. And we make it easy. Just a little something to copy and paste where it will do the most good. Here it is. Nuclear power reactors split the atom to generate heat, to boil water, to run steam generators, to make electricity. Inefficient, expensive, and the plutonium-riddled waste remains deadly for a quarter of a million years. Nukes are not green. Think that says it clearly enough? That's the goal. So it will be up on the website. You can copy and paste it. We will also have it in the weekly email that we send out, the one that contains the link to each episode. So copy, post it on Twitter, throw it on Facebook. There, done and dusted. Activism made easy. I urge you to try it because we need to increase our echo chamber to the world of what we know is true and we want to talk about.
Having said all that, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 19, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, veteranstoday.com, news.com.au, foxnews.com, kob.com, capecodtimes.com, elpasoinc.com, azdailysun.com, tucsonsentinel.com, sanluisobispo.com, npr.org, WashingtonPost.com, Mainichi.jp, ThisIsMoney.co.uk, English.News.cn, at ThisGrand24 on Twitter, TheGuardian.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks for guidance on the Ukraine stories to Carl Grossman and Rowena Kirk. Now, if you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email each week, talked about it before, we'll talk about it again. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, put in your first name, put in an email address. Hey, you're going to get one email a week from me that has the link to the episode, a short description, and now the tweet of the week to copy and paste. That way you will never miss an episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. You can also sign up for it on your podcast channel of choice. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate verifiable weekly news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to the website. There's a modest-sized red button there for you to click on, follow the prompts, and know that whatever you can do will help. And we greatly appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. You can quote or cite me or my guests as long as you credit Nuclear Hot Seat and my guests' organizations. That's what's called fair use. This is Libby Halevi, producer host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that every nuclear reactor everywhere in the world, not just Ukraine, is a dirty bomb on the ground in your own backyard, waiting for the worst to happen. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.